Well, for the last couple of weeks, coinciding with our fall kickoff time, we've been thinking about the church. And we've been thinking about the church from the perspective of the very first church in the book of Acts. And we, we've noted from Acts the character of the church, the, the, the essential character of the church, was, which was the oneness, the unity that they enjoyed. And we've talked about the activity of the church, and we noticed there that they were busy with the activity of, of praying, of baptisms. There was lots of mutual encouragement that was going on. There was preaching and teaching. All those things were part of the activity of the church. And last week, we noted that the early church was described in this interesting way of having the grace of God upon them. And that supernatural grace, which came down from above, became obvious in some of the things that they were doing and some of what they were about, about their, came through in their generosity and through their service and through their striving to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Those are evidences of God's grace being upon the church. And so we're aiming to cultivate all those things here at Wetaskiwin Mission Church, frankly, because we all want God's grace to be upon us. And so we've learned lessons about the church from the history of the very first church, but I want us to move ahead in history a little bit today by having us think about lessons from not only the first church, but from the developing church. The fact that the church that formed in Jerusalem and, and around Jerusalem around 30, mid-30s AD, and that, that, that churches still exist today all over the world means that somehow the concept of church has survived through almost 2,000 years of history. And indeed, a lot of ha has happened in those years, lots of ups, lots of downs, lots of, there was, there's been good cycles, there's been not so good cycles, there's been terrible cycles. And churches have, that have stayed close to, to the Acts ideal and churches that have strayed far away from the early church. All those mark the history of the church. The lesson just from that is that we constantly have to be doing exercises like this where we evaluate what we're doing and that we do it against the template of God's word. The reality is that in a fallen world, there's always a tendency for God's people to drift in their faith and for churches to drift in what they were called to do and who they were called to be. We even admit that in a song. We sometimes sing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. That happens for us, and that can happen to the church. And when that happens, God sometimes has to do something drastic, sometimes something really out there to call them back, to call the church back. It, it happened right through biblical history, these different calls for people to come back to, sometimes it's called just you come back to your first love. And you just need to think of God's chosen people, Israel, for example. God called them out of Egypt. Uh, Egypt is really, a, it's of course a literal place, but it's also a picture of the world and of worldliness. And God called them out of Egypt, out of slavery, yet they fashioned a golden calf and worshipped that instead of their creator and instead of worshipping their rescuer. And the whole story of their 40 years in the desert is a story of God's, grace and their disobedience and of God's discipline and calling them back again, which his discipline was sometimes 
Well, it was both severe and gracious. And that brought about repentance and restoration again for a time. But even when God gave them their own land, the promised land, they rebelled and they drifted from God. And so God gave them judges. He gave them a king. He gave them a temple. He was present right there with them, yet they drifted. Eventually, they drifted to such a degree that God drifted them right out of the promised land. The story that Pastor Andrew read from Nehemiah is part of the history when God brought some people back to Jerusalem. It's an account of repentance and reformation where the people of God were able to be together again and ask for forgiveness and do things the right way again, the way God had laid out for his people to act, which included having access to God's word and having it read to them and preached to them and explained to them. So that was the Old Testament people of God, God's chosen people, Israel. Once we get to the New Testament, we see that God's clear intention is that his chosen people would be his people, not by race, but by faith. The kind of faith that pleases God. It's faith in Jesus that sets people apart to God. And then God gathers all those people who put their faith in him together into the church. And that's what brought us to the book of Acts. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in power, and that's where we have the formation of the church. But God's gathered people of faith are also prone to drift, just like the people of Israel were. The church in Acts is helpful for us in that it shows us what God wants from the church, but even though the church in Acts grew and expanded, and God was adding to their number, they were not perfect. They also drifted. And we can see this through the New Testament letters where Paul is warning churches, where, people, uh, where Paul is, is, is calling the church back from drifting, from shipwrecking their faith, he calls it sometimes. And we can really see it by the time we get to the book of Revelation. The first part of Acts happens in about 30-ish A.D., and ends in the early 60s. Revelation is written, now, this is my opinion, there's some disagreement among scholars, but I think it's written in about the 90s, mid-90s. By the time we get there, Jesus tells the Apostle John, who is the last remaining of the 12, remember he was the youngest disciple back when they were following Jesus, but now he's older, this is in the 90s now, he's the last remaining disciple, and Jesus comes and tells the Apostle John to write to seven churches, five of which he tells that they need to repent or to reform. And so Acts is about the formation of the church. The beginning of Revelation is a call for reformation, reformation of the church. And all of that serves as a warning for the present-day church as well. These were local churches. We are a local church, and this warning in Scripture is there for us as well. And so I want to look at Revelation 2 and 3 very briefly today, but I also want to trans- transport us back five centuries from now to look at a church reformation. The turning point happened, which happened exactly about 500 years ago, almost 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517 in Germany. And I want to give attention to the events around that time, not just for the sake of history, but because of what it means for the church today. 
and the lessons that we can learn from what happened way back then. What happened back then is actually not just history. It is something that is relevant. It is something that is actually still going on. It's reformation that has to keep on happening. And so today we're going to look at what happened in church history and how it affects us today. But for these for the, for the next five Sundays, the five Sundays in October, leading to the 31st of October, we're going to look at five short statements that encapsulate what the Reformers emphasized back in the 1400s and 1500s. In Latin, they are sola scriptura, which means the scriptures alone, sola gratia, which means grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola Christus, Christ alone, and sola deo gloria, the glory of God alone. The Reformation brought correction to the church. It sought to get the church back to what it's supposed to be. It sought to place ultimate authority in God's word alone by saying that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so that's where we're going to go for the next little while, Lord willing. We'll we'll explain the burden of the Reformation from the Bible. There's a saying that goes like this. It says, "You, you can't know where you're going until you know where you came from. And that saying goes for the church as well. So let's go back to the book of Revelation first. Revelation, of course, is the last book of the Bible. And we can already learn a few lessons from this initial call to Reformation. We should take note of these lessons, number one, because they're in the Bible, and number two, because the call comes from the Lord Jesus himself, the head of the church. And so there's a certain power, of course, that's evident when the head of the church calls the church to repentance and reformation. You see it in the very first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, verse 1. He sends an angel to John, and John, and, and to John, he gives us one instruction, which is to write. Write. You see that in verse 11 and verse 19 of chapter 1. Write what you see and send it to the seven churches. So here we are, sometime in the 90s AD. These churches had been in existence for, we could say, maybe a generation or so. And Jesus tells John to send them letters. The churches are basically listed in a certain order, and it's the same order as the postal route in that day. And so a courier would go around and deliver these letters to all the churches in what would be the normal postal route. Just to summarize chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, the, the letters from Jesus to those churches we have two churches there out of the seven that, get a, that we could say get a good report card. But the other five are commanded basically to change or else. These are warnings of judgment if they don't change. It's a call to repentance, a call to reformation. Here's a sample from the first church mentioned, Ephesus. That name might ring a bell. Paul wrote a letter called Ephesians written to that church around 60 A.D., but only 30 years later, here we are, and they receive here a call to change, a call to repent. Here it is, Revelation 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, this is Jesus talking here, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
That's just a sample of the warning that shows up in all five of these letters to those churches. Now, I don't think the, the people who designed and decorated our church building put the lampstand in our foyer for that purpose, but it might be good to think of this warning here, lest our church deviate from our calling. Here's a warning that Jesus might remove our lampstand if we stray from doing what we're called to do. We want that lampstand to be there to shine the light of the gospel. We want to be a lampstand to our world and to our community for what's good. So when we stray, we need to be quick to repent, lest God take away our lampstand. When you think about these warnings in Revelation, we might be shocked that this church and these churches would stray so soon and so quickly. How could that happen? They just, think about the church of Ephesus, they just received an, an amazing letter from the Apostle Paul of all people, yet here they are. They had abandoned their first love, it says. They have abandoned the love for Jesus Christ. And just by way of summary again, the thing about all these churches is that they began to decline uh, doctrinally and morally by succumbing to all kinds of worldliness and immorality. They, they started to open themselves up to false teaching and error and idolatry and compromise and even sexual immorality. We might say that they, they were open and welcoming to all kinds of stuff in the world. Sadly, many churches today have actually outright taken that stance with those very same words. In the name of being loving and tolerant, they use those words, open and welcoming. Sound doctrine gets put over to the side. Biblical truth that has been self-evident for centuries of church history is no longer authoritative, all in the name of being loving and accepting and welcoming. But in that very act of being loving, these churches are now in danger of abandoning their first love. Now, don't get me wrong. Churches need to be loving and welcoming. But the most, remember, the most loving and welcoming thing to do is to speak the truth in love. And that will sometimes mean speaking against immorality and error so that people might be purified, so that people might be transformed by renouncing worldliness again or renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. And when they do, the church ought to then be quick to accept them and to love them, right? By discipling them so that they might be conformed to the image of Christ, as we all are in the process of doing. But the point here in Revelation 2 and 3 is that these churches have drifted. And they've drifted by allowing the world and its thinking to, to infiltrate the the church. They've gradually let in more and more worldly thinking. All churches, including ours, are susceptible to this. It can be a subtle shift, can be a subtle drift, and so we have to constantly evaluate and measure ourselves against the truths of God's word and take warnings from churches like this and apply them to ourselves and ask ourselves those, those questions by which we can measure our church. 
Well, we don't really know how those churches in those cities responded to Jesus' call for reformation. But throughout the centuries after that, the church went through periods of growth and decline. And through all of this, God, of course, preserved the church as an, as an entity. God always preserves his people. And Jesus has promised, of course, to return for the church. And, and he has said in, in Matthew 16 that nothing will ultimately prevail against the church. But just like we saw in Revelation, there will be times when Jesus himself has to come back and, and call the church to repent. And when he's going to raise up people, just like he raised up John the Apostle, to lead in that call. And sometimes, just by telling them to write. Write something down. One such time happened that led to those events in 1517, 500 years ago next month. There was a young monk named Martin Luther who was also prompted to write words that led to church reform at a time when the church desperately needed it. So here's just a, just a quick summary of Luther's life. He was born in, in 1483 in Germany. He was training to be a lawyer, mostly because his father wanted his son to have the, the means to take care of him when he got old. He thought law would be a, a, a good way of getting a good income so that he could take care of his parents. But the byproduct of that law training was that Luther knew the law meticulously. Law was his thing, and he was a brilliant law student. But that training, I think, was all part of God's providence for what would happen later. When he was 22, Luther had a turning point in his life. He was walking from the university. He was going to, to visit, with his, visit his parents. You know, we've got Maggie that's here today that's in Bible school, and she's up here visiting for the weekend. She's got an opportunity to do that. Although back in Luther's day, he didn't get a chance to catch a ride with somebody. He had to walk. So all of a sudden, while he was walking, a big thunderstorm came and a lightning strike hit so close that it actually knocked Luther to the ground. And Luther was terrified. And here's why he's terrified. He thought that if he would have died right then and right there, he would have been damned to hell. Or at least he would have been in purgatory for a long time. And that was part of the church's teaching at that time. And so while he was still on the ground, he cried out to the patron saint of that family, this family, uh, his dad had a mining business, and the patron saint of mining was, a, was, a, was named Saint Anne. And so he cried out while he was on the ground there, help Saint Anne, I will become a monk. He figured that for him, the monastery would be the safest way to get to heaven. You know, less temptation. How bad could it be in the monastery? He thought it would increase his chances of heaven. And so he went to the most rigorous and demanding monastery he could find, but it, he found that it didn't help him. In fact, it made things worse for Luther. He was so hard on himself that he knew he could not do anything to please God. Even when he thought he was doing okay, compared to the terrible things he could be doing, that feeling of, let's call it okayness, only made him aware of his pride. He actually drove the leaders of the monastery crazy because while everyone else would maybe spend a minute or two in, in confessional, you know, maybe they'd ask for forgiveness for that extra piece of bread they took from Brother Leo or whatever it is, Luther would be there for half an hour, for 45 minutes, sometimes even an hour, 
asking forgiveness for every possible sinful thought so that he would not face God's judgment. And while he was in that kind of personal agony, he was doing very well at the monastery. In 1507, he, it's only two years after he was there, he was officially ordained as a monk. But at some point, while Luther was in the monastery, he came to understand that he could gain God's righteousness through faith in Christ. And that was the only thing that could ultimately please God. And he came to that realization through a verse in Romans 1.17 where it says that the just shall live by faith and not through the works of the law. Remember his law training now. Of that massive discovery, Luther wrote, Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a whole new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. It says, this passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. He finally figured out. He was right in knowing that he could not please God. But now he knew that he could please God through faith in another, not through faith in his own works, but through faith in Christ. By now, Luther had become a professor in the German town of Wittenberg, where he would start lecturing on the Psalms and Romans and Galatians. He really started diving into God's Word. And in the church at that time, remember, they never preached the Bible. It was just liturgy in their church services. But a university professor, as a, as a professor, he could teach the Bible. And so while he was in Wittenberg, he started to notice a huge disconnect between what the Bible taught and the prevailing church doctrine. And on top of that, he saw financial corruption in the church that preyed upon the common people being fed errant teachings of the church, mainly to do with purgatory and being able to buy indulgences to buy off some time in purgatory, but, but also other things. All of that led to October 31st, 1517. It was on that day that Luther nailed a, a paper to the castle church in Wittenberg called the 95 Theses. 95 items, basically, of dispute with the doctrines of the church. And what he was doing was really just intending to start a debate with other scholars on those areas of uh, contention. People would do that kind of thing all the time. It was kind of like a, a, an academic bulletin board to start scholarly discussions. Luther had no intention of being divisive, and he definitely had no intention of splitting from the Church of Rome. But someone, and no one knows who, took that parchment, I guess, and had it translated from Latin into German, and then had it distributed all over the place. Well, in God's providence, that was the spark that began the providence, or the Protestant Reformation. If you're interested in what was in those 95 theses, the magazine that's on our information table, Table Talk, a devotional magazine, there's a few of them left, I think, over there, but they go through and, 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 and and they have an article there on all, what all those 95 were. But that launched Luther into, at first, a life of controversy where he, he was brought to task by the church leaders and, and eventually got to the point where he was excommunicated from the church of Rome. But it was while he was one, at one of those inquiries where they were asking him to, to recant where he is reported to have said his famous words, My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, 
I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And he refused to recant what he had written. Well, that's a very brief summary of Luther's life. He went on to write and to teach. There's much about Luther, we have to say, of course, that's not exemplary, especially later in his life. But Luther's one act exactly 500 years ago was the spark that ignited a wholesale reformation of the church. There were people that started reform before Luther, names like John Huss and and John Wycliffe, names that you might be familiar with. And there were people who came after Luther, like Calvin and and Melanchthon and Zwingli and uh, Tyndale, Latimer, and Ridley, who were, of course, martyred, and Lady Jane Gray, uh, Gray, Thomas Cranmer, others. And we all stand in the wake of that. So like I said, for the next five weeks coming up, we're going to look at those teachings from God's Word that were brought into prominence by the Reformation. But I just wanted to close quickly here with um, just a list of things that fueled the Reformation 500 years ago. And we'll see that these are the things that we need to emphasize even now. Only to point out that what happened then still matters for us now. Number one, the Reformation was fueled by an understanding of God's holiness and man's sin. And we need to understand this too. For Luther, like I said, at first it made him hate God because he thought that God would never accept him. And he was right to some degree without Christ. In our world, it's the opposite problem. Our selfie culture thinks too highly of ourselves and not highly enough of the work of God. We think God is too loving to condemn sin and that he accepts us just as we are, even if we stay just as we are. But for Luther, God's holiness and man's sin drove him to try to figure out how he could possibly Please God, and it drove him ultimately to Christ. And that led him in the, to search the scriptures, which is number two. That's the next huge benefit of the Reformation, which I'll get to next week in more detail. The Reformation made God's word accessible to everyone. The fact that you have access to a Bible today is owing to what happened 500 years ago. Before that, when you went to church, the services were all in Latin. Common person couldn't even understand him. They couldn't understand everything, anything, never mind to, to check to see if what the priests said was true or to hear any kind of explanation of the meaning of any passage. In God's providence, again, the printing press was discovered right around that same time, too, and people could see and study God's word for themselves. Well, today, we actually, again, have the opposite thing. We have an over-accessibility to God's word, and yet I fear that we don't know God's word, not because it's not acceptable, are accessible, but because of willful neglect. The stats that are out there on biblical illiteracy are astounding, considering what we have access to. And so we need to recover a love for the Bible. But that led to another benefit that we take for granted today. This is number three, and that is church music. Luther himself wrote music. You might be familiar with the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and that was just one example. But there was a reform of worship services. One article said, quote, prevailing practice excluded the people. They were passive spectators, passive spectators in a rite the clergy said in Latin. But as the reformed congregations met for worship, 
Out went Latin services, altars, vestments, etc. And in came a simple service based on preaching, Bible study, prayers, and metrical psalms sung to common tunes. The people were no longer passive spectators, but were actively encouraged to sing God's praise as part of their worship. End quote. Well, we need to hear that today. Again, we're tempted to go the opposite end with the same results. We have music, but at times the music is in the front and the people are passive spectators. We need to structure our music and our services so that we, in the words of Ephesians 5, sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody with our hearts to the Lord. Number four, quick one. Andrew and I are particularly thankful for Luther and the Reformation because we got to get married. (laughs) The idea of a pastor being married and having children was foreign to Luther's time. So that's a good thing. I just throw that in there. But the biggest benefit of the Reformation is that it marked the recovery of the gospel itself. It was the good news that God sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to save sinners, that is the biggest takeaway of the Reformation. The Reformation of the church was not something new and novel. It was an effort to call the church back to its first love, a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The same issue in Revelation over time became the same issue in the Reformation. And it's always in danger of becoming the same issue all the time. When the word of God was opened up to the church, it was like good tidings of great joy had come back to the church. And we desperately need to keep hearing those glad tidings in our day. The church needs to proclaim it. The world needs to hear it. We can't ever get to the point where we assume the gospel. Even in our century, there have been examples of churches that when if the church in one generation assumes the gospel, it's almost inevitable that the church in the next generation loses the gospel. Catch that? One church, one generation will faithfully preach the gospel. The next generation will just sort of assume the gospel, not mention it anymore. Well, what they found is that in the next generation, they lose the gospel. This has already happened in some Protestant wings of the churches. And even in evangelical churches, we've started to see this. The African-American preacher, John Perkins, has said, there's something wrong at the root of evangelicalism. I believe we have lost the gospel, God's reconciling power, which is unique to Christianity, and have substituted church growth. We have learned how to reproduce the church without the message. Did you catch that? He says, we have learned to reproduce the church without the message. Again, the ancient danger from way back in Revelation is always lurking. So, as Wetaskiwin Mission Church, we want to keep proclaiming and living the gospel and to do it with clarity and with boldness. We want the church to have the kind of life and vibrancy that is fueled by God-exalting, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered life. 1 Peter 2.9 encapsulates our aim. We want to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We want to proclaim his excellencies. May the Lord help us with that task. Let's bow together in prayer.
Our Father, we are once again, as we have been throughout the last number of weeks, thankful for this, this thing that you have created called the church. With you as its head, with Christ as its head, and with the word as its authority. May we never forget even those basic things. As we saw, even those things that became blurred in different periods of history. Lord, we thank you that Jesus said, I will build my church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're here today as people who are grateful for the church. We're grateful for the gospel. And may that gospel, these good tidings of great joy that are for all people, may those tidings continue to be the source of our joy. And may they be the content of our proclamation. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.